Well, hello there. This is Brian Melanson, the founder and president of M4 Innovation. We are recording this podcast episode live in our studio in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You might say it's a very snowy Jackson Hole, Wyoming today. Hey, if you've got any curiosity with what's going on in the health economy, anything in healthcare at large, and you want to think about really where things are going in the next five years, you've come to the right place. We got a loaded show as always. Let's get into it. All right. Well, hello again. I tell you what, in the intro, when we talked about how snowy it is here in uh, Jackson Hole, we're actually, I think, right at the cusp. And I believe we've just surpassed uh, today, I believe, actually, uh, the record for actually having the snowiest February ever. So for all of you guys that like to uh, get on your snowboard or skis, I think Mother Nature has more than delivered here in the uh, Intermountain region up here in the Rockies. So uh, it's been pretty snowy, pretty gray, but in the same point, beautiful all, all together. So a magical place. And, you know, given a lot of the outreach from the previous podcast episode, found out uh, to no surprise that there's quite a number of you that are Whistlepig fans. So uh, cheers to Whistlepig. And as you can kind of hear, we're going to do something a little bit different to support the local economy for once. So take a pause. We'll take a sip. So, folks, this is Arcola. This is a whiskey that's made in Wyoming. It's made in Carpenter, Wyoming. And since 99.999997, sounds right, percentage of you probably have no idea where Carpenter is. Quick geography, it is east of Cheyenne, the capital of Wyoming. Uh, It is about two hours north of Denver if you're looking for a major urban core. And it is a little over a seven-hour trek to the north and the west up to Jackson Hole if you were to be in Carpenter. So there you go. It's the uh, the geography lesson that none of you wanted. So uh, welcome again. It's uh, it's great to have you. You know, we've got a really good podcast episode set up here today and give you a little bit of thinking on where we are. You know, we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, today as far as subject matter, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Direct Primary Care Association Health Plans, HPs, those are just what's kind of give you some of our thinking and how those have been integrated into the kind of the think rank, think tank portion of what we do here and how we've been talking about these things for several years. And it's really interesting to start to see how they're 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 taking off in uh, varying forms. So we'll talk just briefly about that, just kind of as a market update. And then we're going to have a, a, a more detailed discussion on the topic today is really on mental health and uh, the, the growth of digital health capabilities around point-specific solutions in the marketplace and what that means to your product strategies going forward. And then we're going to pull the career thing back to the end. We'll keep oscillating it back and forth between episodes. But uh, for those that want to stay toward the end, you know, we're going to have some really interesting um, references from Stephen Hawking, who's probably one of the most brilliant people to ever, you know, grace the planet Earth. And then uh, a really good friend of ours that uh, we've known uh, since they made their trek over into the United States. Um, well, they got some great career advice and 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 how to basically ingrain certain habits into your day in and day out routine so that you can be successful in the role that you occupy today. We'll talk about that toward the end. All right. So, quick update on the formulate front. The strategy group that we are putting together that is product and distribution focused is now 65% full. So if you're thinking about uh, being part of that group, it's uh, July 
15 to 17. It's in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, I would say the time is pretty near if you have interest in being part of that group to uh, to reach out to us. And, and, you know, the amazing thing is we haven't really done a heck of a lot of marketing on it. Most of it has been word of mouth from existing members or it's been folks that we've maintained a connection with over, you know, many, many years. And this just happened to be the year they they're ready to go. So that group is coming together very nicely. Uh, it's a reminder and kind of the way we do things here, we really don't kind of do the quote unquote conference format and how we set things up. All of our groups are private. They don't, uh, they're not the place where you're going to get the big PR pop that you're looking for and making a big announcement for your business. Uh, these are really more working groups of people that come from a diverse side of the industry and have varying viewpoints on a, a specific set of topics. And, you know, the real role of what we do in these groups is the purpose of these groups is to get this diversity of thinking in a room and attack a particular topic in a way that we can we can physically structure different partnerships or different investments or come up with a ribbon or a theme that you can use back in your business unit or your company that will impact the next you know, three to five years of the industry. And that's where we want to do a little bit of the referencing around uh, direct primary care and association health plans here in a minute, because we've been talking about those particular topics for the better part of five years now and in part of these groups. And it's interesting to see even some of the member companies that we work with and the executives that we work with that are starting to to couple up, if you will, to to really advance some of the thinking that's been discussed over those years. So, uh, you know, keep in mind also on the group front, We've got our, our Jackson Hole group, which is really our top executive group. That meets in October, October 14 to 16. That group's also tracking pretty well. And, um, you know, we're just we're just really excited. We're just continuing to be excited with the, the support of the business groups. Um, you know, we're equally, if probably not even more so excited on the uh, deal-making front, the retained advisory front. Uh, those things are, are going really well, too. So, again, just, just this is our kind of our opportunity to – you know, speak with, with a large number of folks at once just to continue to to relay our gratitude for the support and the confidence that you put in what we do here. So again, we really appreciate that. All right, so let's let's do a real quick high level around let's start with association health plans. And you know what we're seeing there is we're seeing uh, you know a tremendous amount of interest there it seems like almost every every week that there is some new version of an association health plan is being announced and put into the market. Uh, what, what what we're starting to see now is we're, we're starting to see varying technology partners and distribution partners, uh, even within this group, that are starting to figure out ways to construct market advantages and work together. So we're excited to see that. The point I want to make there is that, you know, when we started the, uh, the formula level business group five years ago, we direct, you know, basically direct primary care and association health plans were part of those initial discussions, you know, back when uh, they weren't really discussed as mainstream as they are now. And it just kind of points to the fact that, you know, the the work that we do here within this group, when we get executives together, we're kind of looking at that three to five year time horizon. I think three sometimes is aggressive, five, I think is probably more in line. And, you know, we're, we're actually trying to define what those next steps are in the industry that we think is a collective as, as a group that we think are going to be the pertinent investments, themes, partnerships, and so on and so forth. 
so it's it's really it's kind of gratifying just to see a lot of the things that have taken shape with regard to policy and the predictions of the change in policy the fact that you know with with you know the occasional blip up that the small group employer market for the large largest time has been in de- decline and it's been seeing that one plus percent decline in market share year over year for for quite some time like I said there there's there's two three years where there's exceptions where that blips up a little bit because of regulatory action but generally you can say that the trend has been downward in the size of that market for a while it's still a very sizable market and an attractive market for people to go after but it's been one of those markets that has been challenged with affordability and as long as it remains challenged with affordability and as long as the employer market is the standard for which we offer the preponderance of coverage to to people that are employed and that are working then it it does necessitate the debate around things like association health plans to help to some degree stem the affordability issues that are that are seen in the market and maybe even uh as important, create some type of, of, of affinity or a, th- a ribbon or a theme that ties employers to a community or to a working association, much like you see with uh, certain Medicare plans that are out there that, that tie people to AARP and other things. So, you know, it, it may stand for something that, that ties employers together that's larger than just insurance. So it's just been interesting to see that come together. Same thing with direct primary care. Yeah, I won't spend a whole lot of time on it because I think we could do, you know, really much more in-depth podcasts and we could even interview some of the member executives that are in these spaces uh, as, as future discussions. But, it, you know, even even on that front with direct primary care, you know, it's been interesting to see how there are now platforms and there are pre-tax dollar flow mechanisms that are being created. There are uh, policy pushes to uh, create even more advantageous uh, opportunities for that stuff to happen between an employer and physician or even from a consumer and physician directly. What I find fascinating about that is that, you know, it's a market where physicians are, are basically willingly accepting a, a I, I guess you could say, modern form of capitation. And they are, um, because of taking on more patient risk uh, in the way that they're taking just a monthly, you know, payment for services expected to be rendered from either a consumer or on behalf of an employer group, you know, I, I think what the DPC movement is doing is it's actually going to create much more demand and desire for a lot of digital, low-cost, high-transaction services to be developed. And that in its own right um, could lead us into a world where within a decade, maybe even less, that there are a lot more at-home services that, in a weird way, even de-emphasize or deprioritize the need for one-on-one uh, physical interaction in primary care and maybe more virtual text-based. And then when we get to the point where the physical interaction for you know, mental stability purposes or for the uh, things that concern us that we don't want a machine to talk to us about or a text bot to talk to us about or even a person texting us or calling us on the other end of the phone, then those those outlets are still in the system. But I think that lines up with a lot of the primary care doc shortages and other things. But because of the capitation, you know, more growth and digital capabilities that will support more uh, low-cost, high-transaction things from the home or meeting the, the consumer or the patient where they are and bringing those services more to them, 
And, and I think that, you know, the primary care organizations and the social worker organizations and others that are all tightly aligned at that level will be working more toward uh, taking on uh, the, the referral patterns and how they work with, with specialist care and how they work with hospitals and facilities and how they uh, how folks get, get rolled into maybe even certain social programs. And so I think that's it's kind of an interesting renaissance for both uh, programs or strategies, association health plans and, you know, kind of the, the resurgence of primary care. And, you know, again, as I've always said that as long as the employer model is kind of the, the de facto standard for which everything is, is nailed to, you're going to continue to see a lot of cyclical churn of strategies, the old is new again type approach, because uh, that's just how it works. If you're going to continue to to drive the same vehicle and allowing the employer to fund most of this, there's only so many times and so many different things that you can do before you've completed a cycle and we're, we're back on the merry-go-round again. So, you know, enjoy the cycle, the cycle, I guess, and continue to uh, build strategies around this. But it is kind of a fascinating time. And again, it's, it's just nice that, you know, with this group, we've been working through calling these cycles for, you know, the better part of four or five years. So, all right. So let's, let's start to jump into a little bit more of what we want to talk about today. And while I'm finding the appropriate page in my book, I'll take another sip here. And if you're taking a sip at home, cheers. All right. So this is, um, you know, when we start talking about things like, like mental health and we start talking about things like, uh, you know, even, even digital health and, and the services that are being developed now around helping to manage mental health or at least meet people where they want to be met um, that, that may have a mental issue. Um, you know, this is a rather personal thing even, even for me. Uh, you know, I got into this, this industry several several years ago uh, I guess we're approaching uh, you know, I do the math I'm 15 16 years um, since I got in this industry and you know you know what what motivated me was actually that one of my favorite uncles in the world took his life and it wasn't just how or the fact that he did it it was how he did it uh, you know not to be overly gruesome but but he basically sat down on the couch while the news was being being played and sat right next to my aunt and uh, pulled the trigger and next thing you know you know part of my uncle's all over my aunt you know not again not to be overly gruesome but you know I've always thought to this day that there's probably not a a more selfish there's probably not a more uh, rude and 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 you know completely thoughtless way to do something like that and yet, you know, what was amazing is, you know, my uncle was, was an incredibly successful individual. Uh, my uncle was a, was on all surfaces, a pretty happy person. And then just, you know, up one day, bam, it was over. And it was quite a surprise to someone like me. And, you know, I, I started getting into this industry from the kind of the innovation front to, to figure out where the, the failings of the system were and not helping to identify earlier someone like my uncle. You know, the tragedy to those stories, too, is that almost a decade to the day, my aunt, who experienced that awful, awful thing, she took her life, too. 
So this is a a topic when we start talking about things like like opioid dependency and we start you know talking about uh, suicide, you know, death by by gun. Typically, when we when we start talking about you know the number of people that live with mental health issues that are undiagnosed um, in the country today, it's it's a pretty personal issue even for someone like me. And I know I'm not alone. I know there are people that are listening to this that have similar stories and probably have stories just as just as sad and unfortunately probably just as graphic and have had to to personally deal with those things on their own. And and for that, you know, I just you know the the numbers to me when you when you start to look at this stuff pretty staggering and you know the questions we'll ask is as as an industry that's supposed to be outputting solutions that overall benefit the welfare of society you know the i guess the main question is even since i've been in this industry for you know well over a decade and nearing two decades have we really made that much progress because when you look at the numbers now um I'd say probably not. Um, you know, there there are, you know, you look at some organizations like thetrace.org, you know, there's, there's about 40,000 people that are killed by guns in the U.S. You know, we're at kind of the highest uh, ratio per 100 residents since the 90s. About 60% of those deaths are self-inflicted. Uh, averages out to a little more than 11 per week. And that sounds bad. Uh, it, it is bad. I mean, it, you know, that number at a little more than 11, you'd like that number to be zero, right? But then you start turning over to things like like opioids and, and deaths via opioids and f- around 42,000 deaths in 2016 on that front. There are 11, over 11 million people, give or take around 11.4 million is the number we picked that misuse, misuse opioids. Um, you know, it's about... 130 people that die each day from some type of overdose due to opiates or opioids. You know, when you think about it, there's a lot of theories on on this front. You know, and and I've I've had my own, and I'll share it, and more than happy to debate it with many of you. But I, this is something that, because it is very personal, I've thought a heck of a lot about it. And some of you probably even hear heard me talk about this over the years. My 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 biggest concern is that as a society because of the the rapid growth of delivering everything to us and we can make a similar argument to what I was just talking about about the growth of digital health and bringing more things to people at home and less human interaction and the impact that they may have on our social psyche those are all real questions and concerns and things that should be debated at a very deep level as we think through all of the growth and outcroppings of technological things that are that are coming at us at a at a pace that's pretty darn rapid and we'll talk about that a little bit here but I think that's also something that could be debated much much more deeply in in other forums but just to kind of tickle the ideas a little bit and to get your mental juices flowing you know but you think about uh, the the where we are and I know many of you have heard me talk about this because I use this as a reference point for a lot of things because I think it's critically important uh, in, in the world that we're in today, there are there, there are folks that have coined terms in, in what wave we're in in retail, and you know there's a book out there called The Rules of Retail, and in that book, you know it's, it's basically there's a discussion around the fact that we are in what they call wave four in 
the the retail phasing into society and that's the Jobsian Bazonian era according to the thinking there and what it's done is it's created this this world where everything that we want we can typically get it may take a day it may take two days if you're in an urban population center you may want it in 30 minutes and you know I'm out of toilet paper I want it click 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 and then you're mad if it's 35 minutes same thing with with pizza delivery via apps and other things anymore that's progress on one hand but on the other hand as you start to think about mental health and and other things and I'll I'll correlate this a little bit tighter here to bit at least on the opinion on on the mental health front my theory around a lot of this is that what this growth in technology and this very almost almost relentless focus on centering the entire world around a particular consumer has also created this omnipotence gap that if not monitored and if not massaged and managed creates again in my opinion creates some of the mental health imbalances that we're starting to see as an uptick in society so what what is what does that mean it, it basically if you go back and you look you know many civilizations in past the, you know the world is flat kind of thinking and other things you know way back when uh, civilizations even thousands of years old when there was a catastrophic flood or when there was a famine or you know think of any you know, locusts think of any horrible thing that might be plaguing a particular civilization the thinking there was that they, they there was a dissatisfied omnipotent being you know some type of god that that was unhappy with that particular society so how do they resolve that well they went out and they they gave gifts and they made sacrifices and to please this omnipotent being as time has marched on you can make the argument that we have replaced this this anger of the great unknown or this great unknown that's kind of kind of watching over us and at a given any given time may be happy or unhappy with what we're doing we've replaced it with the thinking that we we are our own gods and that the world revolves around us and technology to some extent has some culpability in that I want it I want it now give it to me you know there are more progressive things out there like I want to find a if I'm younger I want to find a partner for a good time over the course of an evening you know swipe left or right figure it out transactionalize it I want it now give it to me and that that works and maybe satisfying the most primal parts of how how we work and how we think but it also leaves again in my opinion this omnipotence gap and when you start to look at the numbers it's it sucks that what this this omnipotence gap is is doing you know I mean if you look at the age range of of folks that have grown up in the technological world that we live in you know people that are aged now 25 to 34 the you know the Suicide Prevention Resource Center says that suicide is the second leading cause of death for those folks. You dig in a little bit deeper, and there have been people like Christine Moutier who, who've come out, and they've you know, and she's at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She's come out, and she's basically said that you know we've got to be teaching people 
particularly generations, how to manage breakups, how to manage job stresses, how to manage when things in, in our omnipotent world, in our perceptions of what the world is that, that revolves around us, maybe doesn't reflect the realities of how life actually works. And you can argue that there, there, there's an entire generation of, of folks that believe everything revolves around them. Some extent you can say, okay, that's maybe there's a lot of good that comes out of that. But on the mental health side, when that reality doesn't line up with, with what's really happening in the world or when that perception isn't lining up with the reality, that's where I think some of the, the mental health triggers snap. It's, it's the first time that a boy breaks up with a girl. You know, in a world that's very transactional, that's not, that doesn't seem like that's a likely scenario. It's the first time that a job stops being fun and it's a grind. In most jobs, a given some given period of time, they become grinds. They have to. That's, that's the nature of work. But managing through that. So kind of going back, you know, again, you know, the, the statement is we, we need to be teaching people how to manage breakups, how to manage the stresses that come with jobs. You know, they go on a little bit further. You know, Christine goes on a little bit further and says, you know, what are we doing as a nation to help people manage these things? Because the reality is no matter what age you're at, anybody can experience these stresses. And again, emphasis on anybody. doesn't have to necessarily be an age range. But, you know, what I find fascinating is they're even taking that a little bit further. You know, Texas A&M, their telehealth counseling uh, group, they, they did a basically a screen of 450 adults. They looked at between 2010 and 2017. They were using telemental health services. And what they found was that as part of that panel of the 450 people at any given time, given on life circumstances and other things, 43% of that panel at one point or another had suicidal thoughts. Whew, that's a, that's a, that's a real downer, huh? And what's interesting is that they found as they dug deeper that a lot of these folks had been contemplating the mental disease had set in that, that, you know, based on something that triggered it, they'd been contemplating taking their own life for several weeks before they were willing to ask for help. You know, my, my uncle, going back to that story a little bit, my uncle was in the, the uh, beer distribution industry for the longest time had a very successful career doing that. And then we followed my, my aunt into her career passions to lead to HR of a multinational organization. And he uh, retired early, went and was part of uh, supporting her career. Ended up actually, uh, maybe out of boredom, I don't know, opening up a, a pawn shop and turned that into the one of the highest grossing revenue pawn shops in, in the country. I mean, the, the guy was just amazing and had a very energetic, magnetic, personality was a really big guy you know his his uh his fingers and hands were so big you could take his wedding ring off and you could actually slide a quarter through his wedding ring that's how how big his fingers were he's a big big guy he he really really loved at least I thought he loved life 
and then it just ended abruptly and I guess in one way or another that's you know it's the reason I'm here today sitting behind this microphone and having gone through a number of different um, careers and other things inside healthcare to to explore how this industry in aggregate works uh, under this core thinking of what could have happened differently. Now, there are some things when you start to think about how does this relate to you, let's go product strategy for a little bit. You know, from your product strategies, there are a lot of new tools that are trying to get after the fact that how do we shorten or how do we how do we eliminate the stigma that in this Texas A&M survey, you know, because of the stigma, people just weren't willing to reach out for several weeks to say, I need help. How, how, do, how do we shorten that time or how do we get to these people so that uh, maybe we can have an impact and, and save, save lives or help reduce dependency or help to cope with things that might be difficult in the day in a day out basis. And there are companies out there. There's a ginger.io that's come up in San Francisco and that's a company that's selling services to employers. And, you know, it, it is uh, basically it's a telepsychiatry capability. It's an emotional health capability that combines digital tools and engagement tools and uh, professional counseling help at points when needed. And it just, it's a 24-7 access point where people can discreetly say, I'm just not feeling it today, and maybe I need a little help. You know, when you revert it even back to primary care, there are organizations out there like 98.6, which is based in Seattle, and they are now a 24-7 chat-based primary care capability to where they, they're they encouraging people even the most minute question, maybe even the dumbest question. You know, get out your phone, text us, and, and we want to engage with you and figure out what that looks like and to even to determine if maybe it's leading to something that's a little bit more serious. And that's not just in mental health, but a broad spectrum of primary care-related needs is kind of the funnel to the system to figure out where if that can be handled at that level or where it needs to go next. You know, there are organizations out there like Cognoa on this front that's uh, been part of the membership that we have within our group. And, you know, they have developed a system that helps parents understand if their kids are falling behind and if they have um, developmental disorders, particularly around things like autism. And if they do, you know, there's very few resources for children that have been diagnosed under a year old or under two years old to actually help manage that condition. And they want to fill that gap. So some of the broader questions on this, just it gets down to what, you know, if, if we've got all these new digital point solutions that are going after these very specific things in society, even relating it back to product and distribution approaches how do these things get embedded in your product how do you how do you evaluate their merit how do you put them in an environment where consumers can decide what's available how to engage and in some cases maybe in the future how they pay for the service or how if you're a payer or you're an employer how you pay for the service and I think there's there's a lot of things that can continue to be hashed out and will be continued to be hashed out on that topic. 
uh, I'll get the number wrong, but there's, you know, a large insurance organization that did kind of a quasi-survey on this, and they found that most self-funded employer-managed plans today have, I believe it was on average, about 22 of these different instances of these digital health tools and, you know, enrollment platforms and other things that are all part of managing an overarching employee benefit program for the folks that work in that environment. So that lends to a lot of questions about if that's the case, you can make assumptions that the the HR people that have made these decisions working with, with consultants and uh, benefits folks, uh, they, they probably didn't sign up for trying to manage 22 different distinct programs. So if you're an insurance organization or, or a benefits broker or consultant, there's opportunities to start to figure out how to tie all these things together and, and streamline them in a way that they, they build or stack up to products and they, they're the way they're built and serviced and people enroll in them and how you manage and monitor the interoperability of data flow and how stuff gets back and forth and how they're secure and uh, how all that's just kind of managed in, in, a, in a nice package. You know, we've been operating under this assumption that kind of like what you, the airline exper- industry experience, you know, given the affordability issues in, in healthcare benefits, you can make an argument that at at some point you're going to see some deconstruction or, or unbundling of the benefits as this big whole thing that's offered in aggregate to somebody. And if that unbundling starts to happen, you know, what are the mechanisms for you to market and provide product solutions and services to individual consumers, even if purchased through payroll and the employer and other things, what does that look like? And that's beyond just the occasional supplemental product and other things. These are, you know, what if I want to buy an advanced autism capability for my kid? How do I do that? And how would I access it? And how would I pay for it? And those type of things. So there's there's a lot of things I think that can be pretty creatively discussed on that front. All right. So one more pause for a drink as I'm turning the page here. Yeah. Not too bad. This uh, might give Wyoming whiskey a run for its money. All right, so let's talk Stephen Hawking for a bit. And, uh, you know, I love to read, and I know many of you that listen to this, you love to read too. There's a book out there that I've, I found fascinating. It's it's called Brief Answers to the Big Questions. And it's, it's really kind of bite-sized, you know, 10, 15, 20-page chapters on enormous questions that Stephen Hawking took a run at. And it's, it's really fascinating to kind of get inside of his brain and think through things. And, yeah, I want to take this run a little bit on, on you and your career and to kind of pull things together. So there is a chapter in that book that's called Can We Predict the Future? Do we, as humanity, do we have the ability to predict the future? And, it, you know, it's pretty scientific. It, it talks a lot about particles and, you know, the speed and position of particle and can we determine all that at the same time and so on and so forth. But it was the greater hypothesis I think is pretty interesting. As human beings, even in the cycle of being a senior executive in your company that's being asked to create the strategies that will take your company to the next level or will help stave off a threat or maybe do both, what you can learn from this chapter is that 
in this so-called role of trying to take your, your periscope out and look way down the line and determine what the future looks like, you got to be really darn comfortable with managing chaos. There is this thinking around, you know, if there's a butterfly that flaps his wing in Australia and it can cause some type of rainfall event to happen in the U.S. because of that flapping, a lot of people want to say, okay, there's a correlation there. So every time a butterfly flaps its wings in Australia, we can now predict that it's going to rain in the U.S. That isn't true. The whole thinking around chaos is that that butterfly flapping its wings is one part of a very specific thing that happened with a seri- within a series of events in one given point in time that is likely not repeatable because of all the events that stacked up before or after that butterfly flapping its wings. Einstein actually rolled that up into maybe a more uh, elegant theory where he just said that God does not play dice, quote, end quote. And that's one of his more famous quotes that many other folks have come behind him trying to debunk. You know, the thinking there is, you know, the uncertainty is only provisional and that there's always some type of underlying reality. Okay. Um, now, when you get back to Hawking, you know, Hawking basically says Einstein's full of shit. And, <laughs> and basically that most of science comes back to the uncertainty principle, which basically is, you know, um, it's there's just chaos. It's not quite chaos theory, but the uncertainty principle is particle related. And it says that we can't determine both the position and speed of a particle at the same time. There's some degree of uncertainty in all that we do. And when you kind of get back to the just the final final thoughts on this, you know, Hawking would tell you that the evidence says that God is a gambler and he throws his dice on every occasion possible. So as a strategist, I think that what that basically means even for you in your career is that there are times when you're going to have to throw the dice and you're going to have to make the best guess possible. Not there are times, it's just about every time. Because there always are going to be a series of things in motion that you cannot possibly predict. You can only manage them as they come at you day in and day out. All right. Well, in typical Hawking fashion, when asked to give a finality to the question, can we predict the future? His response was, well, yes and no. (laughs) In principle, the laws allow us to predict the future, meaning we have the means to predict the future. We have the, the methods, the methodologies to do it. But in practice, the calculations are often way too difficult to actually do it. And if you're an insurance actuary, you're probably clapping going, yeah, no kidding. Welcome to my world. But I just think that's fascinating. So maybe we just kind of leave it with with this, is that you're in the business of managing chaos and the role that you're in. And that's just kind of kind of how it is, right? All right, so final thoughts. You know, I've got a good friend that uh, moved from South Africa, someone I've known for over a decade, and uh, he's recently released a book. It's called The 11th Habit. Um, his name's Andrew Sykes, and, you know, he does a lot of work in optimizing sales and growth performance for organizations not only here in the U.S., but all over the world, and has a pretty unique viewpoint on, on how 
sales organizations, particularly in a lot of the day in and day out tactical habit forming things that need to happen, how that all comes together to really uh, take sales to the next level, if you will. And he's been coaching organizations under the premise that there are 10 habits that all of us need to follow. And if we you know, embed these 10 habits and they become almost involuntary things that we don't think about anymore and we just, they become embedded in who we are, if that, if that actually becomes who we are as an individual and we follow these 10 habits that, you know, that's really the core that forms a lot of the success that we have in our careers. So I think that that's, you know, an interesting premise. You know, it's, it's, it's a premise that says this is what's going to make us great at our jobs. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating thing. What caught my attention, though, is that Andrew's evolved his thinking over the years in, in doing this kind of work. And, you know, what formed the impetus for writing the book, yeah, the 11th habit really ties in nicely to a lot of the things that we've been talking about in this particular episode. You know, the 11th habit is actually the habit of looking out for ourselves. It's taking care of ourselves. It's taking care of ourselves really before it's too late. And, you know, he added that, you know, the 10 things for optimizing your, your job and your job performance and the habits you need to take to be great at, you know, driving revenue for your organization and pretty well proven. And there's a, a system and a methodology behind that. The 11th habit is kind of the overall general well-being of us as individuals. And, you know, as we kind of tie it back, look, you know, we kind of go backwards a little bit. We live in a chaotic world where certainty, particularly as you get into higher and higher executive positions of responsibility, is harder and harder to find. And you have to rely on your gut. You have to roll the dice at times. You have to take risks. And with that, sometimes creates a lack of balance in aspects of your life. There are things that uh, sometimes they, they, they find themselves out of balance. And you may find things in your life that get out of balance because of the day in and day out stresses in your job, because of the fact that you may be worried that there's some competitor around the corner that's going to eat your lunch, or the fact that there is uncertainty in the strategy that you've just signed off on and you're not sure if it's going to work. Uh, you know, there's been all sorts of fascinating discussions around just on the mental psyche of leadership and, you know, the toll sometimes that being one of the top leaders in an organization actually takes on on, on us as our whole body ourselves. And I just thought this, this, this addition of the 11th habit was pretty timely. It's pretty prescient. It's uh, something that I think is a good reminder for all of us, including myself. And, you know, we, we do need to find balance. We need to take, do need to take care of ourselves. We need, do need to um, make sure that uh, you, you, you reward and tell those folks that, that are part of your lives and your loved ones and others that, you know, how much they mean to you and everything else because that's all part of what this really means. And, you know, it's all part of finding that that balance between the passion that drives you and your day in and day out life and your career and the business that you serve, the market that you're trying to reform, and the things that make us tick as individuals, the things that balance us out, the things that maybe create a broader scope for what life's really all about and what it's worth living toward and the the things that are both wonderful about it and the things that at times are ugly about it and the ups and downs that come along that journey and learning to to deal with it I think does start with the foundation of making sure that we understand that we're taking care of ourselves and that we're taking care of the people around us that we care for and they're taking care of us and uh, finding all that balance so I think it's it's really kind of a wonderful addition to the 10 habits that, that Andrew's been talking about for a long time. That 11th habit is something I think that as we get into business, we we get into the moment, uh, we get into the crux of what, you know, is 
important for the day in day out aspects of, of the company itself, our business unit, or our team, and we forget about that. So, you know, it's just important to make sure that we create these, these this connectivity and that we create this, um, this, this ability and create this habit to make sure that we're reminded amongst ourselves and even the people that we're connected to that we are taking care of ourselves. Because what you don't want to be wrapping it all the way back to the stories kind of interwound in this particular episode, you don't want to be my uncle who just is a very successful career-minded individual uh, just up and one day took his life. And, you know, that balance is really, really important for all of us. And it's something that we all need to be seeking. And, and um, you know, and in no way implying that, that any of us are near that point. But it, it's, just, it's just something that is worth keeping front of mind. It's even in the day in and day out aspects of driving your business is something that's important to know that there is a societal need for the services that all of us are creating or funding or providing to people at, at, at times of need so that we can hopefully make a dent in things like opiates uh, and the epidemic around that, things like uh, people that are taking their lives and, and leaving their families behind and all the wake that happens, the destructive wake that happens because of that. So it's just, it's just an important thing to keep in mind. And hopefully this is an episode I open up a little bit more personally on this one. Um, it's, it's a, uh, I think it's an interesting ride to say the least. And uh, one that uh, any comments or feedback, feel free to, you know, contact us directly. Um, go to the m4innovation.com site. Join the community. Join the conversation. Uh, we look forward to seeing and, and engage there. And, you know, we look forward to, you know, the continued growth and the depth of even the community that we're building, uh, both digitally and through Formulate, where it is that one-on-one -on -one connectivity for people that do start to to create meaningful and deep connections at a, even a professional level uh, where folks are starting to, you know, look at the industry as a whole, say, where is it going to be in the next three to five years? How can we impact that together? How can we create caring and, and lasting relationships, even as executive peers, to where we're trying to help each other in, in our own personal journeys, where we're trying to help each other's teams, where we're trying to help each other's companies? And I think that's... Um, you know, when you look at the, the real crux of what we're trying to build here within our community, it's really a focus on, on the executive. It's a focus on you. It's a focus on your success. It's the focus on what you want to accomplish. It's the focus on balancing out your life because if you can do all of those things and you're successful, then your team is successful and your company is successful and we make a dent and an impact in the industry. You know, being focused on companies is one thing, but it's people inside of companies in the roles uh, up and down the, the ladder of the organization that actually get things done. That's why we focus on people here. It's why we focus on the community, and that's why we want this community to come together with all of its different types of thinking and its experience levels to actually think about this industry differently, impact it, and move forward. Until next time, this is Brian Melanson, The Altitude Sessions. We'll see you in a couple weeks.